Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a fantastic text. All of God's word is, is inspired by God and given for a purpose and is useful to us, but there are some passages that uh, I believe are kind of the, the mountaintop passages in some ways. They're very key texts in your scriptures. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles out on the front table there, and it's also the text is also printed on the back side of your bulletin. Uh, it's our custom here, not out of respect for me, but out of respect for the Word of God, that we stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. So I invite you to do that at this time. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, give ear to the reading of the Word of God this morning. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The same as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, I mentioned briefly at the beginning of the service that last Sunday, if you weren't here, was Ascension Sunday. And that is the Sunday closest uh, you know, to 40 days after the resurrection, after Easter Sunday. Uh, the actual Ascension Day is on a Thursday, not a Sunday, but we, we, we commemorate it on the closest Sunday to that day. And obviously what we look at there is something related to the ascension of Christ to God's right hand that is found in Acts chapter 1 uh, prominently there. And so uh, our text last Sunday, which I mentioned, was Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, and that was Paul's prayer uh, for the church in Ephesus. But what we looked at last week was the very end of that section and what it told us about the ascension of Christ to God's right hand and how all things have now been placed under the feet of the Lord Jesus so that he has now been given to us, the church, Paul says in verse 22 of chapter 1, as head over all things to the church. We saw in that prayer briefly that Paul prayed that God might grant unto the believers there, he says, uh, the spirit, quote, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in their knowledge of Christ, so that they would come to know what Paul says in verse 19 is, he calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power, toward us who believe, and he even goes so far as to mention that the same power he wants us to understand better and better that is toward us in, by God is, quote, looking at verses 19 to 21 of chapter 1, the same power is, quote, according to the working of his, that's God, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one 
to come. In other words, the very same power of God that was at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day and in his glorious ascension to God's right hand, that, Paul is saying, is the same power that is at work in all of you who believe. Now, you may not feel that way. You may, you may be going through your daily life as a Christian saying, you know, I don't, I don't feel like God's power, this mighty power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me. Paul's saying he wants you to understand that better. That that really is the truth, that really is the, the case, that God's power, that same power is at work in you. Now, what, what does Paul mean by that? What does Paul mean when he, say the, when he talks about the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work in you who believe? In what way is God powerfully at work in you and me who believe? You know, there are many in the, in the churches today who I think because they don't understand the power of God being at work in you, they seek other things to try to demonstrate or try to prove to themselves and others that God's power is really at work. They look after miracles. They look after signs. They look after what we, we, we sometimes call the charismatic gifts in the church, as if that is, that is the real evidence of God's power at work. But those are not the things that Paul points us to in the scriptures and not in our text. And thankfully, Paul... When he tells us, he prays for us, he prayed for the church at Ephesus about they might, we might know the power of God at work in us better. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He goes on in the very next chapter in our text, chapter 2, to teach us at least in part of what he has in mind here when he talks about the power of God at work in us and for us. And now this is, this is one of those uh, many places in the Bible where sometimes the chapter divisions in our Bibles Nothing wrong with them per se, but they might distract us from seeing the close connection from one thing to the next. And I think this is one of those, I'll say in my own case, that that uh, was what happened in some ways with myself. Sometimes it's easy to look at chapters as their own little things in a, in a bubble, in a vacuum. Like, you know, if I were to say, I say this sometimes, we could have a little Bible quiz here. I know this is a sermon, so I won't do that. But if I were to say, hey, class, Where's the love chapter? Most of you probably would say 1 Corinthians 13. If I say if you're a Calvinist, where's the election chapter? You might say Romans 9. We have things like that in our minds that we associate, and not without reason. Those are, those are fine things to, to associate with them. But sometimes when you do that, you lose sight of the argument that Paul is making and the logical connection between one thing and the next, even between one chapter and the next, uh, and I think that is in some ways what happens here. We read chapter 1 and we hear Paul saying he prays that we might understand and know better the greatness of the power of God at work in us. And then chapter 2 we think is on to the next subject. But he's on the same subject. He's still talking about the greatness of God's power toward us who believe. In fact, Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian of years ago, writes this. Uh, he says, there is an intimate connection between this clause. He's talking about the beginning of verse 1. And the preceding paragraph uh, in chapter 1. In verse 19 of the first chapter, the apostle prays that the Ephesians might duly appreciate the greatness of that power which had been exercised in their conversion. It was, be, it was to be known from its effects. It was that power which was exercised in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ and which had wrought an analogous change in them. The same power that quickened Christ has quickened you. That is what he is saying here in our text to the believers in Ephesus and to us who believe 
today. And so when you get to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that's our text this morning, what's happening here is Paul is still on the same subject he was talking about in chapter 1. He is still expanding upon that same subject he began back in Ephesians 1.19. And so here in our text in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul is going on to tell us in some detail at least about the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward us who believe mainly in our conversion, but not only that. And so seeing that today is Pentecost Sunday, that's the commemoration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 2, I thought it would be fitting for us to go from the one passage to the other uh, that teaches us something about the work of the Holy Spirit himself in the lives of everyone who believes. And so it just so happens that last Sunday's text dealt with the ascension and this Sunday's text, which is the next passage, leads us right into one that deals with the work of the Holy Spirit. So in God's providence, I think that is quite, quite fitting. Now, you might be saying to yourself, and I wouldn't blame you if you did, you might be saying to yourself, hey, pastor, you know, I just read the text. I followed along as you were reading it out loud. We were standing up a minute ago. I don't recall hearing the words Holy Spirit anywhere in the text. And you wouldn't be wrong. You, you would say, you know, we're supposed to preach what the text says and not what it doesn't say. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not explicitly mentioned in our text, and that is true enough, but I think that the point needs to be made that, make no mistake, there can be no doubt that it is indeed the work of the Holy Spirit that Paul is speaking of in our text, although he doesn't mention him uh, certainly by name. Now, what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, in a lot of ways is the same thing when he talks about being the, dead and, the spiritually dead being made alive in Christ, it's the same thing that Jesus Christ himself spoke about in different words in John chapter 3 when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now, how does that happen? How is a man or woman, how is it that you can be born again? What or who brings that to pass? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark about that, does it? That happens only by the work of of the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, as the Nicene Creed puts it. John chapter 3, that same chapter where he's talking to Nicodemus, John 3, verses 7 through 8, the Lord Jesus tells us there, he says to Nicodemus and to us, do not marvel, don't be amazed, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, or where it goes, here it is, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit. In other words, in some ways, you could say, you know, the Holy Spirit does what he wants. He gives life, new life, to those who are dead in sin whenever he wants, and in some ways, however he chooses to do so, although he does it through the preaching of the gospel and the word of God. But to, Jesus is telling us there, to be born again means to be what? Born of the Holy Spirit. One and the same thing. To be born again is to be born by the Holy Spirit of God, by the mysterious, sovereign, and gracious power of God. It is, as Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it is to be made a new creation in Christ. That's a big change. You know, that, that, that is not a, a, a phrase that Paul just kind of casually tossed around. If you're a believer in Christ today, the, the scripture says you are now a new creation in Christ. I mean, that's, that's, think about what creation was back in Genesis 1. There was nothing 
And there was a whole bunch of something. And all God did was speak it into existence. The entire universe, God's power, that's how great his power was. Well, you coming to faith in Christ in a way, in a real way, is a, is a new creation. You aren't the same person that you were before you believed. That's what the scriptures teach us. So we're going to look at a few things briefly this morning. Uh, and the first is we're going to look at what Paul means by being dead in sin. You know, if you and I are going to properly understand and appreciate the greatness of the power of God at work in us in our salvation from sin, the very first thing that you and I need to do is to get straight in our understanding uh, just the way we were outside of Christ. What were you and I like before we came to Christ? What, were, what condition were we in, those of us who know Christ? What condition were you and I in before God saved us? Because if you don't get that right, you're never going to understand really, and you're really never going to appreciate the power of God at work in your salvation. And that's what Paul teaches us in verses 1 through 3. If you want to look there again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul says this. This is not exactly a compliment, is it? Paul says, and you, and he adds himself, I think, there too, but he says, and you were what? Dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, here Paul adds himself, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Some of you, maybe Rob mentioned being old enough to know when a certain song was written. You know, you might remember some of you in the old show, This Is Your Life. Remember that? They would have the, the, the person, uh, voices talking about things. They have to guess who they are. I forget how the show went, but I just remember the show. Well, this is Paul saying, this was your life, and not in a good way. Here was you outside of Christ. No matter what you might have thought of yourself, here's what you were really, spiritually, outside of Christ. Now, if you truly understand what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 3, your immediate response should be kind of like that of the disciples you remember when Jesus told the disciples it was easier for a camel, really strange word picture here, but he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I don't know about you, I can't even get a thread through the eye of a needle half the time. That's why I don't sew, among other reasons. But uh, then it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Remember what his disciples said? They weren't like, they weren't Marxists. They weren't like, well, of course, rich people are all evil. We, we should hate them, right, Jesus? No. He said, they said, who then can be saved? In their minds, if you were rich, that was the blessing of God in your life, and that meant you must be doing something right, you know, dot, dot, dot. When Jesus said that, they were shocked. They were like, nobody's getting in then. If they can't get in, how can anybody get in? Who then can be saved? If everyone outside of Christ is really dead in sin, the right question to ask then is, who then can be saved? How is this possible? It's a good question. You know, it really is, at least humanly speaking, it's not possible. That is a, a, a change of mind and understanding that many of us need uh, to get straight. Many professing Christians in our day, and, and in, a lot of, in a lot of days, really throughout the history of the church, I think, many profession, professing Christians read Paul's words in our text and, and also things he says in Romans 3, and they somehow come away, I think, at least thinking, if not sounding, 
like uh, remember the, the movie The Princess Bride? Remember Billy Crystal's character Miracle Max when they brought Wesley, who they thought was dead, and they wanted him to revive him, and he got the bellows out, and he was checking him out, and he wanted to make sure they could pay him, uh, and he, they, they thought he was dead, and he said, oh, he's not dead, he's only mostly dead. He's only mostly dead. There's a difference between mostly, right? They thought he was only mostly dead. And what does he say? He even goes on to say, well, if he's mostly dead, he's partly alive. Not just hanging on by a thread, but you know, I think that's how we think of ourselves and others very often. We don't think scripturally. We think, well, when Paul says they're dead in sin, he just means they're mostly dead. And if they're mostly dead, they're still kind of alive and kicking, at least in part, uh, because mostly dead is, is still slightly alive. Well, you could say that Miracle Max, in some ways, as funny as he is, he kind of represents the theology of Arminianism. Now, that's a $10 theological order you might not know about. I won't spend a lot of time dwelling on it, but Arminianism is what you might, maybe you actually believe what that doctrine teaches and don't even know it. If you grew up in a, in a free will uh, theology kind of background, Methodist, I grew up Methodist, you know, whosoever will is the emphasis, and any, you know, whoever will be saved, that kind of thing, uh, that, that believes that people are on their own, are able to come to faith in Christ without any intervention of God. That's Arminianism. In other words, the picture is God is in, in, up in heaven, Jesus is on the throne, but he's handcuffed. And he's pleading and hoping and crossing his, his, his sovereign fingers that just maybe somebody will come to faith in Christ, but it's all dependent upon you. That's Arminianism. That's not what the Bible teaches here, certainly uh, not in our text and not uh, elsewhere. For, for the Arminian, everyone outside of Christ has the innate or God-given ability and free will to believe on Christ for salvation. But that's not what Paul says here at all. And it's certainly not what he says in Romans chapter 3 and elsewhere as well. And Rob, I think, mentioned it in passing. He didn't say the reference. What does Jesus say? He says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can. He doesn't say, I hope they will. He says, no one can. Unless God draws them, they can't. Paul says nothing about sinners outside of Christ being mostly dead. Far from it. Uh, no, he says that we were dead, all of us dead, in trespasses and sins, that we followed after the course of this world, that we followed after the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's the evil one himself. In other words, we weren't just, you know, sometimes we have this picture in our heads. I, I remember, I uh, shouldn't mention these, but I don't know if you ever read those old Jack Chick tracks they used to give out. They were kind of comic bookish little gospel tracks. And one of my main things I didn't like about them, besides that unbelievers read them and laughed at them, was that they, it, gave, it gave the impression that there's, you know the old saying, there's two kinds of people, right? Those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. Uh, but they, the three, there's these tracks, I believe, and many Christians believe that there are three kinds of people. There's Christians, there's the wicked, and then there's some kind of neutral spiritual Switzerland in the middle. Right? Is that what Paul says here? Paul says, no, there's two kinds of people. There's dead and alive. There's spiritually dead, born again, and those who are not. There's the wicked and the righteous, and that's, those are the categories the scripture uses, the saved and the lost. And not only that, but Paul says the spiritual influence upon us in our sin and unbelief was the devil itself. He says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you're not some neutral, unaffected being coasting through life, you know, kind of in the middle somewhere. 
you're either in, you know, born again by the Holy Spirit or you are being worked and controlled by the evil one. You're, you're not just left to your own devices. It's worse than that. And then as if all of that weren't bad enough, he goes on to say that we were what? By nature, that's what we are, right? By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Outside of Jesus Christ, by God's grace, outside of him, our very nature itself is that of sinners in rebellion against God and deserving of his holy wrath. Sin isn't just what we do. It's who we are outside of Christ. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin, why? Because we're sinners. It's, it's what we are by nature outside of Christ. We are dead in sin and children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so I'll ask you again, if what Paul says here is true, and I believe it is, and it is, if that's true, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be saved if we are really dead in sin outside of Christ? How is it that anyone in such a state can ever repent and turn to Christ for salvation by faith? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Uh, look at verses 4 through 10 again. You know, in verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about being dead in sin. He talks about what we sometimes call the total depravity of all mankind outside of Christ. And that should serve enough what he says in the first three verses. That should serve to convince us that if anyone is ever to be saved, it's going to take nothing less than the very power of God himself to make it happen. We cannot make ourselves alive from the dead, but God can. Only God can, and God must if anyone is to be saved. Only God can make the dead come to life in Christ. He alone is the, is the giver of life. Not just our physical lives, but our spiritual lives as well. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he brings it up again. Like, God didn't love you and me and save us because we were worth saving. He didn't love anybody because, oh, God got a good deal on us, or he thought we were pretty good people after all. We weren't as bad as somebody else. It's not... Even when you were dead in your trespasses, God loved us. It says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God, being rich in mercy, did what? Made us alive together with Christ. God did that. Some have said that the first two words of verse 4, that is, but God, are the two most important words in the Bible. And in some ways, you could say that they are a summary of the gospel. John Stott uh, writes this. He says, verse 4, where it says, but God. Verse 4 begins with a mighty adversative, but God. These two monosyllables set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, the gracious, initi gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. We were the objects of his wrath, but God out of his great love with which he loved us, had mercy on us. We were dead, and dead men do not rise, but God has raised us with Christ. We were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness, but God has raised us up with Christ and set us at his own right hand in a position of honor and power. Thus God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. The words, but God, in verse 4 should be music to your ears if you're a believer. 
Those two little words change everything for those who know Christ by faith, or they should. And so I asked this morning, have you been made alive with Christ by the work of God's spirit? Have you been born again so that you believe on Christ? We don't make ourselves spiritually alive from the dead. God does. And think about this. When did God, when does God do it? He says right in the text. If you're a Christian, when did God make you alive? It shouldn't be hard to say. When you were still dead. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Why did God make you alive if you're a believer? Not because of anything in you, but because he is rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, God loved the unlovable. You know, like we set our love upon things that are lovely. You know, we, if you like cats and you're at a pet store and you see a kitten that just melts your heart, you set your love on the animal because it's just, look at that cat. How can you not love that dog or cat or person? God doesn't do that. God sets his love upon those who are unlovable. And that's why Paul interjects there, by grace you have been saved. He's, here's the point. By grace you've been saved. And when he means grace, he really means grace. Not by anything in us. So that dark picture that the Bible paints for us of our condition outside of Christ in the opening three verses of our chapter uh, should serve to magnify the amazing grace, mercy, and love of God towards sinners like us who believe in Christ. The doctrine what we call total depravity as unpleasant, unflattering, and unpopular as it may be, understanding that doctrine is necessary for us to grasp if we're ever going to rightly understand and appreciate the magnitude of God's grace and power toward us in the gospel. If you don't understand what we call total depravity, you'll never really understand and grasp and appreciate just what a great work God did in saving you. That it was nothing less than the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead that brought you to new life in Christ. But, but there's more. Not only does God in his mercy make dead sinners alive with Christ, but he also, as part of that, works faith in us so that you and I come to believe on Christ and be saved. John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, has said this. He says, the principal work of the Holy Spirit is working faith in us. In other words, the main work of the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian is not making you speak in tongues, it's not working miracles, it's not anything else but working faith in you, bringing you, granting you sovereignly faith in Christ. The Shorter Catechism puts it this way. Uh, I'll, I'll try to update the language a little bit. Question and answer 30. Question 30, how does the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? In other words, Jesus died for our salvation. He purchased our salvation on the cross by dying in our place and, and rising from the dead. But how does what he purchased on the cross become yours and mine? How does that salvation become applied to you so that you are actually saved by what Jesus did? Answer, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. We are united to Christ by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is why you have all the blessings that you have in Christ 
because you're united to him by trusting in him, by faith in him. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, effectual calling, what in the world is that? Good question. It's the next question in the catechism, question 31. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit. Here it is again. The work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, because our wills didn't work before this way. Renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. In other words, the outward call is the preaching of the gospel. But without the effectual call, the work of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel falls on deaf ears or dead ears every single time. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the word of God effectual unto salvation, unto faith in Christ. Now, does the Bible teach that? Yes, look again at what Paul says in verses 8 through 10. This is a passage, if you have, if you make it your, your uh, practice to memorize verses of Scripture, this may be one you've already memorized, but if you haven't, uh, verses 8 through 10, I think, are one of the most important passages you could ever spend the time and effort to memorize. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then what does he say? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he says, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How are you, if you're a Christian, how are you saved? By grace through faith. By grace through faith in Christ. Are you saved by works? No, you are not saved by what you do. But what, what does Paul say about our being saved by grace through faith? This is not your own doing. The King James says, this is not of yourselves. What's not of yourself? People argue over this in commentaries and whatnot, and they'll say, is the not of yourselves the faith? Is not of yourselves salvation? What's the answer? The answer is the whole thing. What's not of yourselves? What is not your own doing? Being saved by grace through faith. That, even the faith, is not of yourselves. If you're a believer in Christ, and I hope and trust that you are this morning, how did that happen? Now you say to yourself, well, I believe, and you're not, you wouldn't be wrong to say that. But how did a dead person come to believe in Christ for salvation? Who, who worked it in you that you might believe and be saved? The Holy Spirit did. And if he hadn't, you wouldn't have. No one would have outside of the work of God. What is not our own doing? The whole thing, being saved by grace through faith. Even our faith is the gift of God. And so how can we boast in anything but the mercy of God? We can't even boast about our faith. Because we didn't, we didn't do that in some, in some respects. God granted us faith and repentance if you're a believer in Christ. So we have to understand, and I, I don't use this word lightly, and I know people might, not, uh, they might balk at my use of this one word, but every conversion is a miracle of God. It's the, it's the, the working of the power of God in some ways over and against the previous nature. That's what a miracle is, right? God working contrary to nature, doing things we don't normally do on our own, outside of Christ. None of us would have ever believed. 
The sooner you understand that, the sooner you'll understand a lot of things about the Bible and the Christian faith. Left to myself, I would not be here. I wouldn't even be a Christian at all if not for the work of God. Neither would you. We can't pat ourselves on the back. I know some people who kind of do. I've talked to people who, who are Arminians, they wouldn't call themselves that, who have who literally looked me right in the eye and I said, what's the difference between you as a believer and so-and-so who heard the same gospel as you and never believed and they actually looked me right in the eye and was like, well, it's me. The difference is I believed and they didn't. I was, you know, fill in the blank. I was smart enough to believe and they weren't. Whatever the case, that is not what the Bible teaches at all, not even close. The, the only difference between you as a believer and somebody else as an unbeliever is the grace, mercy, and power of God at work in you, bringing you to faith in Christ. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus says. Every sinner who repents and turns to Christ for salvation is an example of the power of God at work, not merely making salvation possible, but actually saving the lost. That's why Paul speaks of the gospel in Romans 1.16 as the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is not just a message of, of salvation by the working of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. God calls sinners to salvation into, into his kingdom by the preaching of his gospel. And so what does all this mean? There's a few lessons. Uh, I'll just touch on a few briefly this morning. What does all this mean? What does it mean that God takes dead sinners and makes us alive together with Christ so that we believe on him for salvation? First, it means that if you're a believer this morning, if you're a Christian, there is no place whatsoever for boasting of anything in yourself when it comes to your salvation. It's, it's not 50-50. It's not God helps those who help themselves. It's not, well, God did 95% of it, but, you know, I did 5% of it. No, even your faith is a gift of God. Thank God for it. You know, Paul in Philippians 1.6, uh, in, in, in verses 3 through 5, he tells them he thanks God for them always for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. But then he says in Philippians 1.6, listen to this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. What good work is he talking about? Your faith, your conversion. In other words, if you're a Christian, God did that. God started that and God will complete it. God does not bring you to salvation and let you hang on for dear life by the skin of your teeth. He who began a good work in you will what? He, God will. He started it. He will finish it. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He keeps us by the power of faith as Peter says so as paul says in our text we're saved by grace through faith this is not of ourselves and not through works so that no one may what boast no one can boast paul says in second corinthians ten seventeen, let the one who boasts boast in the lord that's the kind of boasting we should do if you're a believer in christ thank god for it give god all the glory for it because it belongs only to him we can't take credit even for our faith. Second, if you've been made alive by the mercy and power of God, live like it. There's an idea, right? In verse 10, Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's, 
That's how much God's power was at work in you if you're a believer. You were a new creation. We are his workmanship. You could even say, I don't want to add to scripture, recreated in Christ Jesus. What does he say there? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the good works we do, God set them up ahead of time. We can't even take credit for that. Oh, I thought of this God. God, yeah, sure. You know, great, good job. You know, um, we we were you know we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, then you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So make it your aim to walk in obedience to God's commandments and to be zealous for good works, for the glory of God and not for ourselves. Now, notice that while we're not saved by works, verse nine, right? Not by works. If you're a Christian, you're not saved by good works. You are saved for them. There's a big difference. God doesn't let you into heaven because you're a good boy or girl. He doesn't say, well, your good outweighed your bad, which would never happen. He doesn't say, well, you've done enough things. You know, I kept checking the box enough, and you've done enough things to kind of just squeak in. You know, lucky for you, uh, you've made the cut. No, he saves you by grace. But now that he saved you by grace and not by works, what does he want you to do? Do good works for the first time ever which can only be done by someone who's been saved already. Otherwise, you're doing the good works for yourself. The only person who can really do good works for the glory of God alone and for his pleasure alone is someone who's been justified freely by the grace of God and not by works. You know, for the believer in Christ, the law of God, his commandments, they are no longer to be viewed as a burden strapped to your back. They are the law of liberty. They are the rule of life and love for God and neighbor. 1 John 5, 3 says this, For this is the love of God. In other words, how do you know if you love God? Is it because you have fuzzy feelings? I hope you do have fuzzy feelings, but is that the measure of it? Is it because you've had what you think of or, or, or really special spiritual experiences? And you've been in the mountaintop, you know, whatever it was, and came down and you, you hang on to that as your, your proof that you're uh, right with God. This is the love of God, John says, that we keep his commandments. And then he adds something else. And his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, we don't look at God's laws. Oh, here we go again. Oh, I've got this thing strapped to my back. It's, I love God because God loved me first. His law is good. His law is a reflection of his holy character. His will for my life, which is reflected in God's law, is for my good always. It's not a burden. Psalm 119, David twice says, Oh, how I love your law. Christians should have a whole different view of God's law than we used to have. Third, our confidence in evangelism and fulfilling the Great Commission must only be in the sovereign grace of God in saving sinners. We cannot and must not try to manipulate sinners into the kingdom of God. We can't help the Holy Spirit out and manipulate people into conversion. The conversion of sinners is not within our power to make come to pass. It's not even in the ability of our hearers, of the sinners, to convert themselves, but only in the sovereign mercy and grace and power of God, because salvation is of the Lord. Now, there are people, I won't mention the names uh, there have been evangelists famous that you might know the name of uh, who believed that the conversion of a sinner, the salvation of a sinner is entirely within the ability of the preacher, which I, I'm doing something wrong, 
or of the person or both. And many, many use that same method when they think of evangelism. So what do they do? They manipulate. They psycho- psychologically use all kinds of manipulation to try to work that decision in the person. Is that what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2? Not even close. God's the one that has to make a new creation. There's no psychological manipulation that can affect the work of God. It's the preaching of the gospel, not with great power of oratory or anything like that. It's preaching God's word and God's word, which is living and active, does things. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And its power shows that people, when they come to faith in Christ, because God is the one who does that. We should have confidence in the power of God and in the gospel that God himself will save sinners, even the worst of sinners. And so I'll say this, Calvinists not only should be the most humblest Christians in the world, Calvinists should be the boldest evangelists in the world. And and I think there are some today that are just that. In years past, they have been. Charles Spurgeon, some of you know that name, the Prince of Preachers, was a thoroughgoing Calvinist, and I, I dare say one of the greatest evangelists in, in modern history. Uh, George Whitfield, uh, another one, a staunch Calvinist, was one of the most staunch and busy evangelists in, in the 18th century because they knew God saved. If I didn't know that God saved sinners, I'd be, I would be afraid to preach the gospel. I'd never have any confidence that God was ever going to work. Pentecost itself, which we celebrate this morning, Pentecost, what was the purpose of God pouring out his spirit, or I should say Christ pouring out the Holy Spirit upon all flesh and upon the apostles? What was the purpose of it? Was speaking in tongues some end in and of itself? Was it even what they say it is now? I don't think it was. But what was the purpose of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? That his people might be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So think about that. The Holy Spirit inspires the gospel. The Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit worked in power upon the apostles themselves and the preachers of the gospel today. And the Holy Spirit works upon the hearers, the sinners they might repent and believe. The Spirit does all of it. He's the only one that makes any of it bear fruit. Last, last but not least, we'll close with this. If you are here this morning and you are not yet a believer in Christ, uh, I hope that you will take a stock of your true state and condition before the Lord if you don't know the Lord. That you will read verses 1 through 3 and say, I don't like that, but that's me. I'm dead in my sins. I need to come to faith in Christ. I need new life. Know that your conversion and salvation are not within your own power to accomplish. You can't make yourself alive from the dead. Only God in his mercy can do that. You can't save yourself by your works. You can't make yourself alive from the dead Only God can do that. So cry out to God for mercy and new life in Christ. If you're even being convicted of your sin at this point, that's the work of the Holy Spirit convicting you and drawing you to the gospel by faith. So turn to Christ even today by faith and live. And if you do, give God all the glory for your salvation, for it's the gift of God that no one should boast. Let's pray.